So here we are this morning in Acts chapter 18. So as we're in Acts chapter 18, I want to remind you where we were last week. It's always good to remember the context of what we're studying. That way we can kind of get a full view of what's going on. And with Paul being on the second missionary journey, he's on the end of it. He's been ministering at Corinth and he's been there for almost two years now. But last week as he arrived in Corinth, he had stayed, in, stayed there for about a year and a half. And if you've been studying with us in the book of Acts, this is probably the longest that he stayed anywhere. Uh, while he was there, he did a couple of things. He did a bunch of things. He met a couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And they were tent makers just like he is. He is a minister of the gospel, but he also has a trade. He's a tent maker, and so he's able to provide for himself while he's doing the work of God. He didn't have to depend on the churches to support him. He felt like he came to be a blessing, and so until the church was able to support him, he basically would make sure he could provide for himself. And this is often the case, even in the United States, many times uh, ministers stumble their congregation by taking a salary, and while God's word says that um, pastors and those who minister in the church are worthy of the, the labor that they're putting in. Uh, for a time, sometimes God calls us to be tent makers. And, and in my own personal situation right now, I'm called to be a tent maker. I'm not supposed to be a, someone who burdens the church financially. And the cool thing about that is while I'm being a tent maker, I get to make individual relationships with people just like Paul did. He met Aquila and Priscilla. I, I met little Richard. I met some other guys that go to different churches and I get to hang out with them and once in a while I drop in on one of them and we talk about the Lord, what he's doing and we're encouraged while we're doing what we do. I get to go see Cindy all the time over in Wax Dip or in Pack, and, and basically, you know, get to talk to her and then it starts conversations with her coworkers and, and God's good. He, he always gives us the ability to, to share what God is doing in our lives. And so Paul's doing this. He's uh, met this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and as he gets to know them, it becomes a long-term relationship that will bear fruit, as we'll see by the end of this chapter. So after he had reasoned in the synagogues, and he had been very bold, he'd been compelled by the Spirit. You'll remember last week that apparently he was afraid. He was in this dark culture known for idolatry and worship of other gods, and then sexual immorality as part of that religious worship. And so Jesus himself spoke to Paul in the Spirit while he was there, and he said to him in verse 9 of chapter 18, he said, Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And so many believe that Paul stayed in this city for a lot longer than he planned on because God had encouraged him with a word there. He basically had told him, I know that the culture is dark. I know that you're discouraged and afraid that you speaking up for your faith is going to get you in trouble. But don't worry. Don't be afraid. But keep speaking because I'm going to use it. And I'm going to be with you along the way. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to give you the words when you're in those situations. And I have many people in this city. And I believe that what this means is that not only did God have many people that had already surrendered to following Jesus as disciples, but there were also many that God still desired to reach in that city. And in any place that God plants his people, that he plants a church or individuals that know the Lord, he has people there that he desires to reach. And so Paul is himself a fallible, weak, scared individual, just like you and I. 
He's not a super saint. He's just a person that has surrendered to following Jesus Christ. And because of that, God's used him in a mighty way. But in the midst of God using him, he still gets scared. He still has doubts. And I love that because there are times where I have those things. And so the Lord speaks to him in this situation. He says, don't be afraid. I am with you and I will use you for I have many people in this city. So Paul, while in the city, also has Silas and Timothy join back up with him because, oops, um, because when he was in, it's all right, when he was in Macedonia and Philippi, basically what happened was he actually ended up being there by himself. He went down to Athens. He had been uh, very discouraged from, from preaching the gospel and, and they sent him on so they could stay there and minister among those who had believed and that the riots would stop because the people from Thessalonia had rioted against Paul and it was making this big disturbance and chaos. And so Paul left being the reason they were rioting and the others stayed there to minister to those who had believed. And then Paul went down to Athens and then he ends up in Corinth where the two letters to the Corinthians are written. But, so let's see here. While he was there, he was also, after being encouraged by the Lord to not be afraid, but to still speak, he was brought to a Roman judge by the Jews who were there, who had rejected Paul's preaching, and they took him to the judge to be basically charged. They said, hey, this Paul that's been in our city, who's preaching among the Jews, he's telling people to worship God in ways that are contrary to what the law says is okay. But... What we'll find out is that last week, um, this ruler by the name of Galileo, he basically, God had already changed Galileo's heart and went before Paul and defended him by saying, hey, look, these people are, you know, whether they're able to worship or not, I'm not concerned with it because they're not breaking the Roman law, which is what I have jurisdiction over. They might be breaking your law, but my job is not to make distinction on your law not on your Old Testament law. My job is to judge the law of the Romans. And so he basically said, the Jews have the legal right to worship in the Roman kingdom here. And so these Christians, they're really just the same thing, which he didn't quite understand it, but he just saw the Christians as kind of a, an offshoot of the Jewish culture. And so they were like, look, they, they're Jews like you guys, so just keep worshiping. And so while that's not the case, that was his understanding. And so he said, they have the right to be here too. I'm not going to make a judgment about that. So that basically made Paul free to continue to minister there. But what you got to know is that even when ungodly rulers, ungodly presidents, ungodly congressmen, I, I don't know about you guys, but I watch a lot of, uh, in, we have an antenna, so we're able to watch Channel 12. We like to watch the weather on there. But what I've noticed is that since Channel 12 kind of, it broadcasts to Illinois and Missouri. There's all these political ads, which I get it. November, you know, Tuesday's coming up, the elections. But there is so much bashing. I don't know if anybody's a good candidate because they've all done something wrong. You know, I, I don't know anything good about any of the candidates. I only know what everybody else is doing wrong from the other candidates. And so my point is, is that no matter if an ungodly candidate candidate gets put in place or not, the reality is, and we are supposed to go vote, pick godly candidates, that's our responsibility as Christians, 
But the reality is, even when ungodly rulers get elected in, God is still in control. God is still in charge of what's ultimately going to take place for eternity. And so he's even involved in the candidates that get voted in. He picks them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 says that, or Romans chapter 15 says that they're God's ministers to keep the peace so that chaos doesn't reign. And though they make ungodly decisions, God allows it. And actually, what I love is that Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says this. It says that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. And so sometimes, even in the midst of what we would see as ungodly decisions, God either directs or at least allows those people that are in charge to make those decisions. And I think about it this way. In the nation of Israel, God told them, here's my law, here's my commands, obey them and it will go well for you. Disobey them and I will correct you. I will chastise you. I'll give you basically what we would give our kids, a spanking. And so the Lord, in his control over all creation, when the Israelites would disobey, he would allow the ungodly nations that surrounded Israel to punish them. He would use their ungodliness to do his bidding. And so we see in the book of Habakkuk, basically they've been disobedient and God allows either the Syrians or the Babylonians basically to come in to take the Israelites captive to rob and pillage and kill many people and to take them away captive to their land. And during that time of captivity, what we find out is that the Israelites, because they're being punished, they cry out to their God, Lord, we've sinned against you. Bring us back to the land and we'll be obedient. And so basically in that punishment, God doesn't send godly people to punish them. He uses the ungodly. But what we should also know is that when those ungodly people do that to the nation of Israel, they themselves will get punished as well. But since they're going to be ungodly anyway, God uses that to punish his own people until they repent. And so in the same way, God will use rulers for his purposes. He's in control. He's got reasons for everything, though we don't always understand. And so Paul, who was almost punished by this ungodly ruler, the reality is, is that God had already gone before him and defended Paul, and Paul was freed up to continue preaching the gospel in Corinth. So, Paul stayed there a while longer, and it says there in today's passage in verse 18 of chapter 18, Paul still remained a good while. He stayed there. And then he took leave of the brethren, and he sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila, those that he met at the beginning of the chapter, were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centuria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there, meaning Priscilla and Aquila. But he came to Ephesus, excuse me, but let me start that verse over. <laughs> and he came to Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila there, but he himself entered the synagogue and he reasoned there with the Jews. And it, then it says, when they asked him to stay a while longer with them, he did not consent, but he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he said, and then he sailed from Ephesus. So 
Paul sails from Corinth. He ends up in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila have built a relationship with him, so they go with him. And while they're there, what happens is basically, before he leaves Corinth, he gets a haircut. And he takes a vow. Now, why does he take a vow? God doesn't expect us to make sacrifices. He would rather have us or a heart that's right before him. But Paul has been ministering on this second missionary journey, and God's been doing amazing things. He's very thankful for God's promise of being present and then him being able to experience that presence of the Lord in his life. And so when Paul gets ready to leave Corinth, having been there a couple years, he's just overwhelmed by God's goodness. And he says, Lord, thank you so much. I want to give you something. God doesn't expect us to give anything to him. He did, everything that we have is his anyway. But because God, Paul is seeing God's faithfulness, he wants to do something extra. And so he does. He gets a haircut. But what does that have to do with making a vow? Well, in Numbers chapter 6, there's this vow called the vow of a Nazarite. And it's basically taking this step of faith and saying, Lord, I'm yours. Not just my life, but everything that you've given me, it's yours. And so what they would do is they would, some people were born and they would say, our child's going to be a Nazarite. And the three requirements were, they would never cut their hair. They would not partake of the fruit of the vine, meaning grapes, wine, or eating grapes themselves. And they wouldn't go around a dead body. Now, some people are like that anyway. <clears throat> but this is a conscious decision to do these things. Now, there were three people that I can think of at this moment that were Nazarites in the Bible. Number one, Samson. Samson was a Nazarite. When the Lord through an angel, told, told Samson's parents that they were going to bear a child, though they had been barren. He said, this child will be a Nazarite. He's going to be a deliverer for the nation of Israel. And many of you have heard of Samson. Everybody believes that when he cut his hair, basically, or when they cut his hair, that robbed him of his strength. But the reality was that he was toying around with what God had done in his life. He'd been playing around in the vineyards. He was chasing foxes. He had been around dead people. He'd been killing people. <clears throat> He'd been living a life of disobedience to what God had called him to. So him getting his hair cut was just the final straw. The Lord was like, you keep playing around with how I've blessed you. Now I'm going to let you be delivered into captivity. Anyway, he was one of the famous Nazarites in the Bible. There was also John the Baptist. He was a Nazarite. And then there was also Jesus Christ. He was a Nazarite, not like a Nazarene because he was from a place, but because of those three requirements, he fulfilled them. But <clears throat> there was also people that took a short-term Nazarite vow, and they would basically say, Lord, I'm going to set apart some time to basically worship you and give you everything that I am because I'm yours anyway. And so they would cut their hair at the beginning of the vow, and at the end of the vow, they would take whatever hair grew during that time, they would cut it off, and they would give it as a burnt offering before the Lord. Now this, if you've ever smelled burnt hair, you'd think, why in the world would they do that? But that wasn't the only thing they would give. They would also give uh, a couple of other sacrifices. Uh, they would give a burnt offering of a leg of lamb and some other things that they would burn on the altar and say, Lord, thank you for all that you've done for me. It's called the thank offering. And so... <clears throat> Paul made this, this vow, 
and he now wants to get to Jerusalem because that's where you would make a burnt offering. Now, Paul has been preaching to people, you don't have to follow the law to be saved. So it's kind of confusing that now he would take a vow and he would have to go to Jerusalem to make a sacrifice, but he's still a Jewish man. He still loves going to the temple at the feast times. He understands that all of these feasts that were from the Old Testament were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The Passover, where they would celebrate God's deliverance out of Egypt. They would kill a lamb and then they would take the blood of that lamb and put it over their doorposts. That was the celebration of them being delivered, saved by the blood of the lamb. Delivered because the people of Egypt, they had their firstborn killed by the Lord because they wouldn't let the people of God go. So, he's going there to celebrate Passover, not because he has to, to be saved, but because he knows what it means now. It means so much more. And so he's headed to Jerusalem, and he tells them, I'm headed there, so he has to expedite his travel process. He's no longer going to take so much time in each city. He's going to go from city to city, kind of expediting the process, still preaching the gospel, but kind of rushing through. <clears throat> so his, he's rushing through. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus, in the city on the coast in Asia Minor. And um, <clears throat> little Richard, would you do me a favor? Would you hit the, the right arrow on the computer for the next slide? I have to have pictures. Just that, there you go. Okay, so he's left from Corinth on the far left, and he's traveled to Ephesus. And that was the place that when he was going from Iconium to Antioch to Troas, he wanted to go to that region, but the Lord wouldn't allow him. So now on his way back, he's still got this desire to go there, and he stops for a little bit, Preaches in the synagogue. Now, what have we looked at every time Paul stops? He goes to these cities, he goes to these places, and everywhere he goes, he goes to the Jewish synagogue first. And what happens? He preaches the gospel, they get aggravated with him, and many of them shoo him out of town. They start riots in Iconium, they stoned him, what they thought, they stoned him to death. God raised him back up. So now he gets to Ephesus, he preaches the gospel, and what do they do? Do they send him out? Do they try to stone him? Do they yell at him and riot? No, they say, hey, we love what you're preaching, why don't you stay here for a little bit? But since Paul wants to go to Jerusalem, he's like, I can't. For the first, per first time, they want him to stay, and he can't stay. Doesn't that make total sense? No. <laughs> We're like, Lord, all these other places he could have stayed, and now this place he preaches, they want him to stay. And he's like, no, no, I got to get to Jerusalem. The feast is coming up. <clears throat> I just find that funny. So then he travels on and he sails all the way down to the lower right here to Caesarea. And it says there, somewhere, in verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up, he greeted the church. He went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed, he went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen all the disciples. <clears throat> so what's taking place here is he sailed all the way down to Caesarea, the little dotted line, if you can see it, goes down to Jerusalem. He worships there, 
And then it says that once he stays there a little while and worships, he makes his offering of his hair and all the animals that he's going to sacrifice. And then he gets back on the trail and he goes back to Antioch. Now, where did Paul get sent out on his two missionary journeys so far? From Antioch, because that's his home church. Paul's been called to travel and preach the gospel. That does not mean that he doesn't need fellowship. He needs as much fellowship as possible. So while he's going through, he makes sure to stop and to hang out with the people that know him the best. That's his home church. And it seems that he only stays there a while because verse 23 says, after he had spent some time there, he departed, he went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So before we go on, I want to talk just for a minute about what Paul's doing. Paul is just like you and I. He's a Christian. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so what he's doing is he's preaching the gospel, and then he goes back through and he's teaching how to live out the gospel now that you are saved. And as he's doing that, he's really doing the same thing that you and I are called to. Paul's been given gifts by the Lord to strengthen the church. The church is not a building. It's a group of people that God has assembled together. Last week we talked about the bucket of Legos. And when the Legos are all spread out on the floor, we gather them together. But God's not talking about gathering together a church. He assembles the church. It's called the called out assembly. And when he takes all those Legos, that's you and I, and he puts them together, each time you add a Lego... You strengthen whatever you're building. Lucy and I did this last week. We built a tower out of those, not the little Legos that you can swallow, the Duplo blocks. That's what we called them when I was growing up. And you stack them, and every time you stack them together, if you're building a a fortress or a tower or a boat, whatever, every time you put another one in there, it gets more sturdy. Now, that doesn't stop Lucy from pushing the tower down after we're done. But if we build it and we use as many blocks as possible, they're all put in the right place. If she pushes it down when we're done, what happens? It doesn't fall apart. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 25 says, He who hears these things that I'm teaching and does them will be like the man who has built his house on the rock. Be like the man who digs down, gets down to the bedrock, pours a foundation, and then on top of it, builds his house. He who hears my word and ignores them, doesn't do anything about it, doesn't apply it, will be like the man who took his house, didn't dig down, and built it on the sand. And when the waves crashed and the wind blew, that house built on sand, it gets blown over and destroyed, and great is its fall. But the one who dug down and placed his foundation on the bedrock of Jesus Christ will be like the one that when the winds blow and the waves crash, what happens to that house? It stands for the test of time. And so Paul is strengthening the church by building it on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. And he does it by using the gift that God has built into him at salvation. Each one of you who call on the name of Christ, who follow him, have been given gifts to strengthen the church. We think of those who minister, those who serve, as the guy teaching the Bible or the people that lead in worship. 
But those are just a couple ways that God gifts people to build up and strengthen the body of Christ. For some of you, you've been given the gift of construction and we can build walls and we can help each other with projects at home. That strengthens the body of Christ. Some of you have been given the gift of um, encouragement, hospitality. You're good at opening your homes to people. Some of you aren't. Some of you are given the gift of helps. You notice when people have need and you jump in and you come alongside and you help them with different things. Some are given the gift of counseling. Some are given the gift of administration. You're good at bringing groups together to do one common goal. Paul's just exercising the gift that God's given him. And he's doing that along the way, wherever he's at. He uses that gift. And what he's going to do is he's, in verse 23, he started the, second, the third missionary journey. These people that he's planted the gospel in each town, he's going to go back among them and he's going to teach them now how to walk in that salvation, to bring them to maturity. Because the Lord doesn't want us to remain as children. He wants us to grow up and learn to walk learn to feed ourselves, learn to feed others. And so he does that by teaching the word of God everywhere he goes. And as he does his part, other people are then equipped to do their part. Turn real quick with me to Ephesians chapter four. Just a couple chapters that are right. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, this is Paul writing, the prisoner of the Lord. I was talking to little Richard. He doesn't like that phrase. Why does he call him the prisoner of the Lord? Well, at this point, Paul's in jail. And so he doesn't look at it like, I'm in jail because of the man's got me down. He looks at it like, The Lord has made me his prisoner for his purposes. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech, which is just an old King Jimmy word to say, I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, meaning with humility and gentleness, with long suffering or patience, bearing with one another in love. Excuse me endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. In other words, you've all been called according to one faith. I would love that, Kate. Thank you. That's what Grandma said for <laughs> You're all called to one faith. And that faith each one of us has is in Jesus Christ. That gives us unity. But the reality is, is that many times we forget who our Lord is, who our master is, who our leader is. And so because of that, we have to be reminded. And Paul's reminding them, we're all serving one master. And so because of that, verse 7 says, to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he is ascended on high, he led captivity captive when he ascended into heaven, and he gave gifts to men. This is not like what we give at Christmas time, like in a present, wrapped up. These are gifts to strengthen the church. Go down to verse 11. 
says he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets. Apostles are just people that are sent. Prophets are those who speak for the Lord. Some evangelists that share the gospel. Some pastors and teachers. But any of these gifts, whether it's teaching, preaching, whether it's uh, speaking the word of God into people's lives in an informal way, they're all, it says there in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. We think of ministry, we think of ministers, we think of the guy sitting on the stool or the pastor or the worship leader. We think of people that, like Billy Graham, who go and share the gospel with multitudes. But it says that all these gifts are for the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? Those who are Christians, those who have been called by God out of the darkness and into the light. For the edifying of the body of Christ. There's that word again, it just means to build up. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, till we as a body, by using God's gifts that he's given us, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to share the gospel, until we as a group, starting as individuals, start to reflect the person and the works of Jesus Christ to this world. That's what those gifts are for. Paul's exercising his gift. Let me ask you, what is the gift that God's given you? We just read that God gave gifts to men to minister to one another. What's yours? If you know what it is, let her rip, tater chip. And if you don't know what it is, ask the Lord what, how you've gifted me to serve the body that I'm a part of. It's kind of like your body. We've got fingers, shoulders, knees, feet, toes. All of them have a purpose. But in the body of Christ, it's just like that, except we don't have a head. Our head is Jesus Christ. Not one of us is the one guiding the rest of the body. But Jesus is the head. And so you might be a a big toe. You might be the little toe. You might be the knee that helps it walk. You might be the mouth that speaks. But the reality is we're all guided by one spirit. And so God gives us unity in the way those gifts are used. And I know that because we're going to see an example of it here. Verse 24 in Acts 18. It says, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. So here they are, excuse me, came to Ephesus. Apollos is from a city called Alexandria. He was a Gentile. He was eloquent in speech. Here's some things you need to know about Alexandria. It was not a godly place, but it was a very large city. The second largest city in the entire Roman Empire. It was a seaport on the northern coast of Egypt. It was famous for its great library and was considered the cultural and the educational center of the world. So people that came out of Alexandria were very smart. They were educated in the philosophies of this world. But he was an eloquent speaker, and that would make sense if he's from that city. He was one who was filled with the word of God. He was not from a godly family or a godly culture, but he still had come to know the Lord. 
He had been instructed in the way of God. He was fervent in spirit. That word fervent meant he was on fire. You guys ever play video games? Okay, so maybe that doesn't match up. But we, I used to play NBA Jam. It was in uh, Super Nintendo back in the day. And, and on NBA Jam, if you made enough shots, and if you went back and forth, basically if you got good enough and you didn't have any mistakes, your head would light on fire. And every time you made a shot, it would burn the net off of the goal. That's how good you were. And the little announcer on the game would say, He's on fire! So this man, my point is, you're all back. <laughs> this man was he was on, <laughs> he was on fire for the Lord. And so he was telling everyone he knew about the Lord. But here's the problem. He only had a, a fraction of an idea about God because he was a disciple of John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was a prophet of God. Uh, Jesus himself said that there was no prophet greater among men that ever walked the face of the earth than John the Baptist. I'd take that to mean that he was a pretty important guy. Jesus says somebody is important and he was a great prophet. I'm going to take his word for it. But John the Baptist, what he preached was prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight a path for his coming. He preached repentance, which means to turn from your sin but he preached it. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. Now he didn't mean that God was getting ready to set up a, a kingdom. The kingdom of God was Jesus Christ. He came to proclaim the death, the burial and the resurrection and the salvation of anyone who would call upon his name. But Apollos was still walking in the faith that Jesus was getting ready to come. But we know that Jesus already came by this point. So Apollos is still preaching that people should repent because the kingdom of God is coming. Is that false? No, it was absolutely true. But the reality that Apollos didn't yet know is that the kingdom of God had already come, that Jesus had already was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the, the world by dying for them. Now they could have salvation, not just repentance, but new life. And so because Apollos didn't know this, as he, verse 26, began to speak boldly in the synagogue, when Aquila and Priscilla, who just so happened to be left there by Paul in Ephesus, they heard him, they took him aside one-on-one, -on -one, not in front of everybody, but one-on-one, -on -one, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And look what happened, verse 27. When he desired, after he heard it, he desired to go, cross over to Achaia, which was in Corinth, over there on the left. He was in Ephesus, here on the mainland. After he learned this more understanding about Jesus, he wanted to go to Achaia, back where Paul had already been. So he's going to be used. Paul had already planted the gospel there, and Apollos is going to go over there and water it. It's kind of like if somebody were to plant a garden, somebody else comes along and pours water over it. Each thing is necessary, but if only one happens, there's no growth. So Paul was a hard-pressing preacher, evangelist like Billy Graham, and Apollos was more of a Bible teacher. I don't get up here every week and do salvation messages because I'm hoping that most of you already understand the gospel. My job is to make sure that you are fed the Word of God in a way that's healthy, in the way that God sees fit, and then as you partake of it, as you 
eat it each and every week and hopefully go home and read it on your own and grow as you're nourished by the bread of life that you will mature in your faith. So Apollos is called to go and do that. And as he does that, he's been encouraged by Aquila and Priscilla. Remember where I said that Apollos came from is Alexandria, this big city, and he was a very educated, eloquent speaker. He's a university-trained guy. He's a college boy. What we would call a college boy. And look who he gets taught by. Priscilla and Aquila, a mom and pop, basically. You know, we tend to think that only people that are of high education can teach those that are, are not highly educated. But the reality in God's economy is he uses what we would consider uneducated people to educate those who are, in the world's eyes, wise. I love that. Because though I am a college boy, and many would consider me that, I didn't make that great a grade, so I consider myself one of the mom and pops, you know? And so the Lord uses those, um, each one of us, in, in His way. So, verse 27, When He desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples who were there to receive Him. And we, when He arrived there in Corinth, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. So there were many there who still didn't believe, and so because of his education and is able to speak well to these people, he reasons with them, not from his own reasoning, he doesn't get up there and complain about them or argue with them, but he refutes them by pointing them to what God's word teaches. And so, what I want to just go back and do is, Paul didn't just plant churches, but he also went back and built local churches. He preached the gospel and he went back and encouraged them. And while he was doing that, he met Aquila and Priscilla, and they supported each other in ministry. And later, when Priscilla and Aquila left with Paul, they stopped in Ephesus. Paul went on to worship. And while they were there, basically the work of the gospels multiplied because Paul goes and goes back up to Antioch and he gets ready to travel again. And in the meantime, Priscilla and Aquila stay in Ephesus and they invest in Apollos who ends up going and investing in Corinth. The word of God, when planted in the human heart, when obeyed, multiplies fruit. And we see that. Paul invests in people. Those people invest in people. And those people invest in people. And before you know it, the word of God is spreading like a wildfire. Yesterday we were burning leaves. We got all our leaves down into the ditch. You don't have to light every foot. You can light one. And as the wind blows, what happens? That fire spreads and it burns everything that there is there to burn. And the word of God, when it takes root in our hearts, is like that fire. It looks for fuel to burn. And as it takes ground... More and more leaves are burned. More and more people come to know the Lord and learn to walk by faith in Him. So I ask you again this morning, what is the gift that God's given you to build up the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and then we'll close. In that church in Corinth we've been talking about this morning, there was a group of people that said, well, I follow Paul. 
And then there was another group that said, well, I follow Apollos. And they were all very proud of themselves. And there were even some of those that say, I don't follow either of those guys. I follow Jesus. And they were all worked up about who they claimed to follow. Now, we should all be following Jesus. Not me, not Steve, not Jesse. We should all be following Jesus because that's the foundation our lives should be built on. But here's what Paul wrote to those Corinthians that thought that they were something by saying, I only follow this guy. He said in verse 5, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now, verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Paul looked at himself as a foundation layer. He didn't want to build on anyone else's foundation. That's why he would go to places where the gospel had never been preached. But he said, and another builds on it. You ever build a house? One crew comes in, they dig up footings, they pour them. Another crew comes in, they might even do the flat work of the concrete. Sometimes it's the same guy. But then there's another crew that comes in and they bring all this lumber and in a couple days there's a structure. They frame the building. But many times those people that frame, they wham and jam, they nail, they, they sweat, they build, they cut. They're not the ones that come in and do the drywall. They're not the ones that come in and, and, and put the trim near the floor. I'm more of a framing type. You don't want me doing trim. It's going to have hammer dents in it. It's going to have big old cracks in it. It's not going to look good. But then there are those who are called to wire the house and to put the box in there and to hang the ceiling fans and to run the water pipe. Each person in the body of Christ is gifted in a way that we can do our part. You don't want me doing trim, but I can do some framing. You don't want me pouring concrete or making it smooth, but I can help put the forms up. Each one of us has a part though. And as God uses you in each other's lives to do your part, what happens is the gospel was spread effectively and efficiently. Many of us try to make other people do our role, or we try to do other people's roles. You know, I see Billy Graham and I go, I want to be like that guy. But I'm not gifted that way. It's okay. And the reality is, is Paul was the same way. He noticed that he was a frame builder. He was the one that laid the foundation. But Apollos was the one that would build and, and strengthen by doing the finishing touches. And so <clears throat> this morning, we're going to take communion. And I said this last week, but this week, um, or last month, but I talked to the boys. We're going to have everybody that wants to come and take communion come up and get the elements as we sing this song. I want you to just to consider, Lord, what's my part? How have you called me to serve? And then as you do that, we'll take communion elements together after we sing the song. So Father, thank you so much 
for your word, how you desire to not only save us, but then to teach us to walk with you. Lord, each one of us has a part in someone else's life to encourage them, to lead them to salvation in many cases, to then build them up in their faith. Lord, help us not to desire to do any part but the one you've gifted us to do. And as we do that, Father, build your church. Jesus said himself, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Lord, I pray that you would build your kingdom here. And as we take communion, as we get these elements, Lord, help us to consider for using the gifts you've given us to serve you, to serve your people. And as we consider these symbols, these elements, the, the bread and the wine, Lord, help us to consider the fact that you literally gave those things. And Lord, help us to live lives, if we're not already, that are worthy of your sacrifice. So Lord, we just give this time to you and pray you bless it. In Jesus' name, amen.